This podcast is brought to you by The City Church in Mississauga, Ontario. For more information, please visit thecitychurch.ca. We hope you are encouraged by this message from Dr. Coulter. Okay, I'm going to start with prayer. Father, we give you praise tonight in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord, for your precious, holy written word that feeds our spirits, illuminates our minds, renews our souls, and is medicine to our flesh. Thank you, Lord, for the anointing that makes preaching and teaching easy and easy to listen to. Thank you, Lord, for removing any barrier of communication. We will give you praise as you bless your people. In Jesus' name, all the people said, Amen. Amen. I had to make a decision as I began to study again, First Peter. We have four weeks to cover. That was the only four weeks that we could really set aside with all the other activities going on during the week here at, Har- at uh, City. Almost said harvest. Um, and I'm doubtful if I wanted, uh, I, I could shortchange you. In other words, I could gear the teachings to like four little snapshots, or I could uncover every little aspect of First Peter, which is very profound and has tremendous thoughts in it. So what I've done is the latter, and I'm not going to try to finish it if I can. I'm not going to try to rush through it. But we will do, if we don't get it finished to the end of chapter 5, I'm going to put it on the, on the podcast, on the website, and you'll be able to get it there. There's many prominent themes that run through Peter. It is a, a, a profound book, as the book of Romans. Uh, it, because it's only five chapters, many times it doesn't give its, uh, its due. Th- these are some of the themes that I want you to be looking for. Holiness of life the sufferings of Christ. Now, you have to learn to take shorthand, your own shorthand. So, for instance, if I'm saying Joshua, don't try to write the word Joshua. Get your own little shorthand for different scriptures. If you say the book of Acts, then just put A-C, or uh, Amos would be A-M, or something like that. Don't try to write it all. You'll never get it. So, holiness of life, the sufferings of Christ, suffering as a Christian, God's sovereignty and salvation, the grace of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, the church as the new people of God. That's an interesting one. The reality of the unseen spiritual world and trusting in God in your daily circumstances of life. Also, some other themes are the blood of Christ, uh, relationship between husband and wife, and on and on we go. So when we're looking at, when we're looking at 1 Peter... Um, these are a group of Christians in a remote area in the Roman Empire, um, which would be uh, around what we call Turkey today. They were living with limited rights. They were suffering persecution, discrimination, prejudice, abuse, because they were Christians. And as the reader and us would be reading this book, we recognize there is encouragement about how kind God is. In other words, that God wasn't causing these problems, but they were being persecuted because they were Christians. 
and that they were, if they would put their faith in God, they would be able to overcome. With great literary skill, the author shows the readers that they are God's chosen and special people and to live holy lives. Suffer for Christ if necessary, he's telling them and us, because they can overcome it and be blessed at the same time. So that's just a little uh, thing that I wanted to share with you at the beginning. If you have a question, now we don't have time for question and answers, but if you have a question, if you'd write it down, I tried to answer it. If I think I'm going to answer it in the corpus of the lectures, then I won't answer it specifically for you. But if there's something that I think needs to be answered specifically, I would answer it uh, at the beginning of the next class. So you can get a question uh, piece of paper at the back as you're going out if you have a question, and uh, we'll try to, to cover that for you. Um, now, 54 people signed on for this, but there's not 54 people here, Frank, so just let them in when they come. Um, but I don't want them trying to get up here and mess around with everybody's stuff. Okay, thanks. So let's go over to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. It should be on the screen for you. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter identifies himself here immediately as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And you know because of the teachings before that the apostle means a, the, the general meaning of apostle is a messenger. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but Jesus designated 12 of his disciples as apostles. He had many disciples, but he designated them, 12 of them as apostles. Well, that's another thing I'm going to do in this, in this lecture series. I'm going to cross-reference many scriptures to show you how the Bible hangs together. So here, for instance, I'm going to show you Luke chapter 6, verse 13, that says, And when they came, he called his disciples, a bunch of them, and chose from them twelve who he named apostles. And after Pentecost, these apostles began functioning as apostles. These twelve in the scripture are known as apostles of the Lamb. After the twelve apostles, after these twelve died, there were no more apostles of the Lamb. There were apostles, just like there are apostles today, but there are no apostles of the Lamb. Look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the supreme importance of these apostles is suggested by the fact that the phrase of Jesus Christ, you notice the phrase in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, that particular phrase is not, is not attached to any other of the offices in the New Testament. Prophets, evangelists, pastors, or teachers are never referred to as apostles or prophets of Jesus Christ. 
only apostles. So it gives us sort of an idea of the importance of their interaction at the beginning of the church. These apostles could write and speak for God. In other words, they spoke God's very words. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. My suggestion is that you write every scripture I give you down so that you can further uh, look at it when you're in your own studies. 1 Corinthians 2.13. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Let me give you other scriptures that you can look at. Acts 5.3-4. Romans 2.16. 2 Corinthians 13, 3, Galatians 1, 8, and 9, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, 1 Thessalonians 4, 8, and 15, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, and 14, and 2 Peter 3, 2. All of these in some way refers to the fact that the apostles could write and speak for God. In other words, First Peter is God's very own words. And these words that they wrote became New Testament scriptures. First Corinthians 14.37 should be on the screen. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Let me give you some other text that you might look at. Second Peter 3.16, Revelation 22.18 and 19, 1 Thessalonians 5.27, Second Thessalonians 3.14. So in this opening phrase, Peter reminds the readers <clears throat> that he is writing in the role as an apostle and are God's words, which we should receive <clears throat> as God's very own words. Notice the next phrase in 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. <clears throat> the term... <clears throat> Excuse me. The term exile, take my mic off for a second. <clears throat> I'll take my mic off. <clears throat> the term exile always refers to a temporary resident in a foreign place. The words exile and strangers, as it says in the King James Version, are not the best rendering of this Greek word. Exiles gives the idea of forced residents, forced residents away from the homeland. Or in the King James, strangers suggest that they were not known by their neighbors, but they were. It's better to say a sojourner rather than exile. You and I, by the way, are sojourners, and I'll speak about that a little later. For the word elect, it's better to use the word chosen. So we could say this, to those who are chosen, sojourners of the dispersion. That gives a better idea of the text. 
So the church is made up of born-again believers who are chosen by God as recipients of a great privilege and blessings. And we're going to find out later in the text in 1 Peter that you folks who are New Testament believers are unique in all of the annals of the history of salvation. There is nobody like you in the history of salvation, and there will be nobody in redemption any more important in the salvation history as you folks. You are the redeemed of the Lord. You are the chosen of God in the last days to bring about this kingdom that's coming when Jesus returns. There will be nobody like you ever again. Listening? There'll be nobody like you ever again. Because he said, I'm doing this in the last days. We'll talk about that a little bit more. So the church is made up of believers chosen by God as recipients of the great privilege and blessing. Matthew 20, 16. So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Another text you could look up would be Matthew 24, 31, and Romans 8, 33. These readers who would be made up of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, especially the Jewish Christians, those readers would hear echoes of the Old Testament, people of God, Psalm 89.3. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. You might want to look up uh, Psalm 105.6. Isaiah 42.1, Isaiah 43.20, Isaiah 65.19. So in all of this, that God is a preserver and a protector of them as his family. We're going to see that a little bit more later on in the text, as his family. You can read about that in 1 Peter 2. 4 through 10. So here we are, it says in the text, elect exiles, or I want to say chosen sojourners. And this chosen sojourner idea becomes a two-word sermon. Not that they were temporary residents in an earthly sense, for many of these people had lived in the same city all their lives. But spiritually, their true homeland is heaven. Spiritually, your true homeland is heaven. You may live in Mississauga or the surrounding areas, but your true homeland, your future, is in heaven. Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are chosen to be God's own people by virtue of what? By, not by our own doing, but by virtue of the cross, to eventually inhabit God's heavenly kingdom. Now, I want to say a word about this word, dispersion. It says, in the dispersion, or the, from the word diaspora, a term that's used by Greek-speaking Jews to refer to Jewish people scattered throughout the nations from Israel's homeland, but it's not used that way here. 
You can see it used that way in John 7.35, which says, The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we would not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? But here in Peter, the word dispersion is used to refer to Christians like it is in James 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Therefore, the word dispersion in 1 Peter has a new spiritual sense. That is to refer to Christians spread out throughout the world away from their heavenly future homeland. So here they are in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, all over Turkey. But their real homeland, their future homeland, is heaven. So now we go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Now all of this that I've just said is according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That verse is mammoth. That verse is almost unbelievable. That verse is a post-doctrinal study. It is absolutely incredible. According to the foreknowledge, let's look up the word, let's look at that word, the foreknowledge of God. Christians, you and I are chosen in Christ according to the Father God. And everybody, listen carefully now, everybody can be chosen if they come to Christ. Christ is the chosen, the anointed one from heaven, and everybody that comes to him becomes the chosen ones of God. In other words, it doesn't, it's not meaning that before the foundations of the world, the foreknowledge of God decided that you and not somebody else would be part of that kingdom, be part of the chosen few. Everyone can be part of the chosen few if they accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, I don't have this on the screen, but it comes to mind. You can look it up yourself. There, look up Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians, Chapter Five, Verse Nineteen. That is. In Christ, God was reconciling the world, everybody, to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message, this message we have, this gospel message, it's a message of reconciliation. So you understand from this scripture, God is not holding the sins of anybody against them. the gears of your brain should be working. God is not mad at people today. God poured out his wrath regarding sin on Jesus. So Jesus took our sins so that we could receive the righteousness of God in Christ. 
Now, this is why we have to go tell people, because God is not mad at them, and God is not holding their sins against them. He dealt with sin on the cross. When this age of grace changes or comes to a complete end, then other things take place. But as far as now is concerned, God is not mad at anybody. Um, There's another scripture. uh, Go over to, um, in your Bibles or tablets, to 1 John. 1 John. Chapter 2, verse 2. Talking about Jesus Christ here. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation means that God's wrath was turned to favor. That's what propitiation means. In Christ, God's wrath to the world, to people, were turned to favor. God has, God thinks of everybody in a favorable light. And it's interesting, it's, the Bible says that the goodness of God leads people to repentance, to change. Preaching that tries to hang people over the pit of hell is not the message of reconciliation. The message of reconciliation is that God loves you and cares about you and is not mad at you. And if you want to, to, to enter this blessed, this blessing of a life and a relationship with God, all you have to do is receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. So God is saying that in the foreknowledge of God, everybody is chosen, but not everybody realizes that choice. Because number one, even they they haven't heard the word, haven't heard the gospel, or they've rejected it. Now, the having heard the gospel issue is one issue I'm not going to get into in this series, but I did in one of the other series answer the question, what about people who have never heard? What about people who are uh, uh, mentally challenged? What about people who uh, die before they can't even count? I answered all that before, and I want to get into it again. The foreknowledge of God is something that's past. But notice in 1 John chapter 2 is another word called the sanctification of the Spirit. The foreknowledge of God is past. Sanctification of the Spirit is present. This is something that we enter into with the Lord in terms of our own holiness, which we'll talk about in a minute. The foreknowledge of God, the whole issue of salvation, we can't do anything about that. All we do is receive it. But we can do something about and cooperation with the Holy Spirit in terms of living a holy life. We'll get into it a little bit more. So foreknowledge has to do with the past. Sanctification has to do with the present. That means that God is involved in everything in our lives, past, present, and future. We'll notice here in, in, the, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, we notice that Peter mentions the three persons of the Trinity. God the Father in his foreknowledge, 
the spirit in sanctification and Jesus Christ regarding obedience. God the Father foreknowledge, God the Spirit sanctification, God Jesus Christ obedience. Here we see distinct actions of the Trinity, one God, three persons, each with a particular purpose. We see them then in this context uniting to bring about a common goal, the eternal full salvation of those chosen sojourners to whom Peter is writing and to us. So we have what we call salvation today as uh, we, we are born again, born anew, we're on our way to heaven, but it's on the way to, it's, it's in heaven that we see the full salvation happening where there is no pain, suffering, sorrow, and so on. So we're moving, we're sojourners, we're on, a, we're on a mission, we're on a travel, we're on a train, we're going somewhere. That, where, that, that place is our homeland, which is, in, which is heaven. Let me concentrate on the word sanctification for a minute in this text. Sanctification, where the Spirit's involved. When I think of sanctification, I think of the present work of the Holy Spirit working to make us more holy in the image of Christ. This is something you have to cooperate with. God puts the seeds of sanctification in you when you get saved. Sanctification means separation unto God. It means less sinning and more righteous living. So this sanctification is on the inside of us, but then the Holy Spirit works with us, but with an act of our will that we have to want to live holy lives. As a Christian, you can live a holy life or you can live a life that's holding God at arm's length in your life. You can disobey God. But the Lord doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to separate yourselves onto righteous living. When I think of obedience, then, when it has to do with Jesus Christ, when I think of obedience, I think of two things. I think of obedience of the Christ going to the cross. Let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless not my will, but thine be done. I see the obedience of Christ. Then another, the second aspect of obedience, I see our obedience to receive Christ, to follow him, to follow him into eternity. But while we're following him into eternity, he has given us eternal life. We have a foretaste of eternity. So here we are this, tonight looking at First Peter. We're sojourners. We're believers. And Peter's readers and us see this combined work of the Trinity. So we see ourselves tonight. Peter wants us to see ourselves surrounded by God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, actually surrounding us and in us. Jesus said, we're going to make our abode in, in, him, in you in which we do what? We live and move and have our being, like they said in Acts, in Acts 17, 28, the A part of that text. For in him we live and move and have our being in Christ. This is the goal. We're going to talk about holiness. Peter's going to talk about holiness here in a minute. This is our goal, to live a holy life, to recognize that we live and move and have our being in him.
So then, as Christians, being aware of the work of God in our lives, we can turn every hardship, listen to this, we can turn every hardship, every negative circumstances around to our favor. How do we do that? James 1, 2 to 4 says it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect or mature and complete Lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. Now, there's not one of us sitting in this room that hasn't, hasn't experienced trials and tests. If you haven't experienced trials and tests, you're not really living. I mean, you're doing something, but I don't know you're living. But I bet you all of us haven't responded quite the same. Some of us respond, we get mad at God. We get mad at people. We hold God at arm's length. We do stupid things. But if we're aware of this scripture that there is the foreknowledge of God, the sanctification of the Spirit, the obedience of Christ all on the inside of us, we can turn every because it is, we, not, we understand that we're living in his presence. He, he is in us. So we can turn every circumstances around to our own favor because he wants us to be blessed. Let me just say one more thing about this obedience to Christ. Indicates here that God the Father's purpose in us, that our lives ought to be leading and leaning towards obedience to Christ. Paul picks this idea up in Ephesians 2.10. For we, you and I, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before, before you even became born again, God had a purpose for you to walk in the, in, 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 in the work of God. Everybody has a the Bible talks about the members are set in the church. Each has a responsibility. Everybody's not an eye. Everybody's not a tooth. Everybody's not a hand. But we all are something. Functioning. God wants us to function in this kingdom. Another couple of verses that you can look at about that would be 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 8, and John 14, 15. So looking at, these, looking at the Trinity in this verse then, we see what? The Father plans, the Spirit empowers, and Jesus Christ receives exaltation as a Savior and ruling Lord through our obedience. I'm going to say that again. Jesus Christ receives exaltation as Savior and ruling Lord through our obedience in our daily lives. Look at Romans 6.16. Do you not know, Christians, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So you have the option as a Christian to obey your flesh or the devil or the world 
and sin, or you have the option to obey righteousness and live a holy life. Now, the unbeliever can't do that. The one who hasn't got Christ can't do that. But you have Christ. You have the Holy Spirit down on the inside of you. If you yield to him, you can live righteous lives. If you yield to your flesh or the devil, you can lead unholy lives. And it's your choice. So we, we receive Jesus exalted as Savior and Lord, and we want to follow him in our daily lives. Another scripture you can look at for that is 2 Corinthians 10. Five and six. Now in First Peter chapter one verse two we see another sentence. I'll read the whole verse again. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. We are to live in obedience, but frequently we sin. Frequently we miss the mark. But because of the blood, our missing the mark is continually restored. The blood is on the mercy seat in heaven. There is a copy of that, of that uh, holy place that God gave the instructions to Moses what to do. But there's a copy of that in heaven, so to speak. And the blood of Jesus Christ is on that mercy seat in heaven, reminding God that our sins are forgiven and that we are always welcome into the presence of God. Now, you remember in the Old Testament, the Old Testament priest had to do everything just right, put the blood on the ear, the nose, the toe, and do all the things right, and if he missed it, he was toast, down dead. That's why he had bells on the bottom of his skirt so that they would put the hook in and pull him out from that holy place and then get somebody from the union <laughs> to go back in there. But this blood on the mercy seat says that we can go because it's on the mercy seat and it's the blood of Christ, not the blood of bulls and goats, which can't sanctify you or save you. Now you have the option to go right into the presence of God, even though you make mistakes. If you confess your sins, you see, you can go right into the presence of God anytime. Aren't you glad? The sprinkling of the blood. So we are always welcome in the presence of God. Let me read you this little tidbit in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6, 14, 19, 28. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. How much more will the blood of Christ, notice, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkling both and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The blood of Jesus Christ continually is cleansing us. That's why we can go into his presence. Verse 2 talks about 
for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of the blood means this. God's plan for us is not obedience marred by unforgiveness and sin, but God's plan for us is obedience with failings cleansed by the blood of Christ on a regular basis. This means a continual experience of obedience and forgiveness. There's obedience and forgiveness. There's obedience. We're not perfect. We still live in the flesh, and from time to time we'll make mistakes, and we'll miss the mark, and we'll sin. But God is thinking in terms of God. When God sees you, he sees you in Christ, which is obedience and forgiveness. Obedience and forgiveness. This is who you are in Christ. Enjoy the place. Obedience and forgiveness because of of who you are in Jesus Christ. It's who you are in Jesus Christ. Not who you are, but who you are in Jesus Christ. Then he ends up that verse 2 by saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What he's done here is he's expanded a form of Paul's salutation. Paul's salutation was grace and peace be to you. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Romans 1.7, Paul says it like this, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Old Testament, New Testament. Peter couples Old and New Testament blessings. Old Testament peace, Hebrew word shalom. New Testament blessings, grace, chara. God's undeserved favor. God's grace to you has been undeserved. He has given you favor. There's nothing you could do to get it. The blessings are overwhelming. He's given his his favor, his grace. And all of our moments should should delight in his blessing. In other words, folks, we should be praising God all day. I mean, every time we think about it, we said, under your breath, it works. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you for your goodness. To be aware. To be, this is what Peter, this is why he writes this letter to people like you who are in the midst of a world that does not want God, who, who are living in the midst of a world that sometimes you get persecuted because you're Christians. He said, I want you to be aware of who you are. I want you to be aware of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want you to be aware so you can just give him praise. Constantly. When you do that, you'd be less likely to miss the mark. Okay. Now we're going to the next section. I think it's in your notes there. Joy and future heavenly reward. Is that what we have next? Verses 3 through 5. I've already gone a half an hour. We've done two verses. So you can see what I mean about uh, this thing here. The term Father applied to the first person of the Trinity. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, groups of people have misunderstood that phrase right there. I want to break it down for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
This, this phrase, blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, does not imply in any way that the Father created the Son. The Father did not create the Son or caused him to exist. For the Son always existed and is himself God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself gives a hint to the people around him, whether they understood it or not. And he said in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So what was Jesus doing there? He was saying that the same uh, title that God gave himself to Moses when Moses said, Who shall I say sent me to the people? or to Pharaoh. God said, tell him I am Yahweh, Jehovah, the self-existent one, God of which there is nothing greater. Jesus said, this is me. I'm God. I'm here with you. So God the Father decided that God the Son, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit decided in the annals of eternity past that Jesus was going to come the son was going to come in the flesh God was going to come in the flesh and for sin condemn sin in the flesh so he's God he lived with the father son and holy spirit in eternity past but on the other hand the father relates to the son in a normal way the father plans and directs the son responds Okay, son, it's time to go. Okay, son, it's time to come back. He's sitting at the right hand of the father. And he's, just, he's going to decide when Jesus comes back. So, the, so it's the father. It's got the father figure. And the son figure in the, in, the, in the context of the Trinity. Father's planning and the son responds. The father sends the son. And the son comes from the father at the father's bidding. So this is why Jesus said this in John 5. John 5, 18, 22, 26, 27, and 30. <clears throat> so Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. And whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Why? Because they're the same kind of person. They are God. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. For as the Father has life in himself, so he granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. I do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We see the unity in the Godhead in that context. We also see that the Father creates through the Son. All things come from the Father through the Son. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. Very important text. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God, Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, were all together creating the world. This always blows my mind. It always... Uh, let me give you other texts you can read there about that. John 1, 3... 1 Corinthians 8, 6, 
Colossians 1.16. The Father creates all things from the, through the Son. In verse 3, I, I guess I won't, I won't go on. Verse 3 says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God. So what happens here now, Peter is encouraging us to praise God as a helper and a remedy for hearts weighed down with discouragement and suffering. If you could just remember that. Remember that Peter is writing to people who were suffering trials and tests because they were Christians and just suffering trials and tests in general, like us. But he wants them and he's encouraging them, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's encouraging them to praise God in the midst of it all. And again, we hear the echo of James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, that steadfastness have its full effect in you, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You're not praising God for the problem. You're praising God in the problem. You couldn't praise God for the problem because he didn't bring the problem. But you praise God in the midst of it. You counted joy. The reason for this praise is, notice he said, by the glory of the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a lively hope. The reason for my praise is because I'm born again to a living hope, a hope that's competent, expectation of a life to come, which he describes in verse 4. A living hope gives the idea of a growing hope, increasingly in strength in every year, a progress, a spiritual maturity. You'll never grow spiritually. Peter is saying you'll never grow spiritually unless you learn to praise God. On a regular basis. You can't just praise God on Sunday morning. It's good to do it you have to learn to praise him. Spiritual maturity begins because you start moving beyond the problem into the present, into his presence. Praising him. By the way, you'll never grow spiritually unless you start to grow in the fruit of the spirit either. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, kindness. How do you think that you're going to mature? You ever thought of it? Has it ever occurred to you? Is it, is it, is it, has, it, has it entered into your brain? How do you mature? How do you become a mature Christian? Just show up at church? No, you have to, you have to do something. You have to develop in the fruit of the Spirit best way to develop it is right at home. Esther had to really develop love at home. Living with me. Joy. Peace. Long-suffering. 
There's a lot of people who are long-suffering, but they're not kind while they're doing it. And you can, listen, you can be in life, you can, you can either be mad and grumpy because all of us have experienced stuff many times not, we didn't cause it or sometimes we cause it. So we can end up grumpy, frumpy, grumpy, filled with doubt. Doubt complains, grumpy and mad, faith rejoices, gives thanks and is glad. We have to learn to praise God. Say, Lord, this too will pass. Lord, I thank you and start, start developing these fruit of the Spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, kindness, faith. Then Peter, in Second Peter, starts to talk about add to your faith these things, and if you add these things to your faith, you will never fall. If you add these things to your faith, Paul, Peter is saying in Second Peter, in the book in Second Peter, if you add these things to your faith, you will be successful. So a further look at this hope from verse three, this sure hope that holds the future in the present. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? We're moving towards something, folks. We're moving to that glorious day when the kingdom of God is not only going to be manifested on the inside, but in society. Jesus is going to rule and reign. We're, work, we're moving towards that moment. So this sure hope of ours holds the future in the present because it is anchored in the past. Can I say that again? This, future, this hope that we have, this hope, the future, in the present, because it is anchored in the past. It's anchored in the foreknowledge of God. He planned the whole thing. I'm part of it. You're part of it. It's a sure hope because he has already accomplished his salvation in us, the new birth, and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why it's a living hope. Now, this was life-changing for Peter. You have to understand, God used the right guy to write this letter because the resurrection for Peter was important. When Christ died on the cross, it ended Peter's hopes. Peter, Peter lost it. He failed. He cursed. He, the, the, the cock crowed three times. Oh, yes. I did it. I did exactly what Jesus said. I sinned. I lost my hope. But the point is, Peter's trying to say, Jesus didn't stay dead. Peter's hopes is reborn in Christ. So Peter writes to praise God for the living hope. Christ is alive. And with the resurrection, with the resurrection of Christ, a new age began. With the resurrection of Christ, a new age began. And this is the last days. Do you understand? You live in the last days. How long those last days will be, we don't know. It's already been 2,000 years or something. But you and I live in these last days. Through us, God is going to usher in the new age, another new age, 
through us. People are going to join that new age, not the new age that the world is producing, but the new age that Christ is producing. People are going to enter that age because of you. You're going to, you have the ministry of reconciliation. You're going to live such a life that people will want Jesus. This is why Peter is telling them that you are chosen sojourners in God. There's going to be a new, year, a new birth for the universe. That will be consummated when Christ comes again. But for now, it's a new birth in you. But for those of us who are united in Christ, in his death and resurrection, the new day has already dawned in us. We have been brought from death to life. Romans 6.13 Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. See, isn't it interesting how, how, God, how God doesn't make you a robot He gives you this life and then he says, now you can use it or abuse it. You can live to righteousness or you can live to unrighteousness. You have a choice. Now the world doesn't have a choice. They can't live to righteousness. They haven't got the righteousness of Christ. But you can live to righteousness. Christ's resurrection secures for us both new resurrection bodies possibly in the future and new spiritual life right now in the present. The future is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 42 to 45. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Peter, Peter is talking a lot about the future, but you notice he doesn't tell us about it? Anybody ever notice that? He doesn't tell us a whole lot about it because we couldn't handle it. That means I'm supposed to stop just before I've got to get this thought out. I've got to get this thought out. I've got to get this thought out. There's not a whole lot told us about what it's really going to be like after Jesus comes. Let me come back. And there's a reason why it doesn't, because people get kooky ideas. Like another minister I know said, there's stuff that's wrong, there's stuff that's right, and there's stuff that's kooky. And we got kooky stuff going around. Like, I don't know, like you get some lawyer or something. I just heard this the other day. I can't believe it. You get this lawyer some uh, to get you so that you can have all your stuff secured now, so when you come back, you can have your house back when you come back. (laughs) Now, for instance, what lawyer would ever do that? He'd have to be a nutcase himself. (laughs) He would have to to be hard up for money for, for, for something. Because we got mansions. You want your old house back? Now, this is why Peter's not concentrating on what is going on in the future, 
But he says there is this future that is so magnanimous that you have uh, waiting for you that you, you just want to be, you just want to look for Jesus. Not that you want to escape, but you have a, you have a sure hope. Well, I have to stop right there and have a break. And we will pick up in about five or six minutes. About this future that God has for us, which we, we get a foretaste now. But the present is because we have this, because of the resurrection, we have available blessings to us. We don't have to just exist. We have the blessings of God. We can, we, we can, our bodies can be healed. You see, we have this blessing of healing, which you find in Isaiah 53. And do you know that Deuteronomy 28 and 61 says this, that all sicknesses and disease, Deuteronomy 28, 61 says, all sicknesses and disease written in the book, that he has a whole list of stuff in Deuteronomy 28, and not written, diseases as have come into the universe since that writing, written and not written, are a curse of the law. The curse of the broken law of God. But according to Galatians 3.13, I think I've got that one up there. According to Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. Therefore, I can be healed of every sickness and disease. But I have to access all of these blessings by faith. They don't fall on you, folks, like ripe apples off a tree. You have to exercise your faith in God, and I keep telling everybody, and I'm going to tell it till I go to heaven, that faith has, is, is, has a two-part deal. Faith is believing in your heart and saying it with your mouth. Everybody say that. Believing in your heart and saying it with your mouth. I believe that I receive. Whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe, believe that you receive them. Mark eleven twenty four. Believe that you receive them, you shall have them. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, sickness and disease or whatever, be thou cast seed, not doubt in his heart, but believe those things which he saith in his heart, shall come to pass, you'll have whatever he says. So you say it with your mouth. This is faith. Believe in your heart, say it with your mouth. Some people, it's not just saying it with your mouth. It's not just confession. You have to believe in your heart. You have to get it, the scriptures that covers your case, down in your heart. And then say it with your mouth. So we have, we have this option of healing that God wants us healed. Now many Pentecostal people and people like us are always waiting for a manifestation of the gifts of healings or working of miracles or something. We're, we're waiting for somebody to lay hands on us with the gift of healing. We're waiting for somebody to tell us what we have wrong with us and then pray for us. But you can receive healing on your own. Probably should. You're going to keep it, you're going to keep it longer, actually, when you do it with your own faith. But what if, what if you go through life and you're never in any service where the gifts of healings are operating? 
because they only operate severally as God wills, he says in 1 Corinthians. You can't make them operate. So what if you're in a service and you're sick and you know manifestation of the gifts of healings? What are you going to do? To believe yourself. It's the best thing to do. This is, so these, this, Peter is saying all of this stuff here, this present glory that we have and the future glory, the present glory, we have all of these blessed, blessed be God the Father. Praise God for all these, this, this hope we have. So the resurrection secures for us blessings in this life and a future life. We have been raised with Christ to a new present and the possibility of a new future. Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Positionally, we live in heaven. Experientially, right now, we live in the earth. We have, we're, we're in two places. That's why we can go to heaven when we die, because we're in Christ anyway, spiritually. Couldn't go to heaven when you die if you weren't in Christ. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. You're in him positionally there. We live here experientially, but we also live there. <laughs> oh, sometimes I can hardly stand what I am, my own teaching. <laughs> so we started this section by concentrating on hope and praising God. So we are praising God that the work of salvation is his work. We could not do it ourselves. We could not accomplish it, nor do we deserve it. And this praise is not a mere formula. It's praising God for his work of grace. And you're going to read about that in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. We'll get there eventually, but I'll read it to you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he's talking to Jews and Gentiles. He's telling them both. Something interesting and something new. Verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So much there. The object of our living hope is an inheritance. This inheritance we have in heaven is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We not only have an earthly inheritance, <clears throat> all the blessings afforded to us by God, but also we have a share in the heavenly kingdom, a future heavenly reward. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeemed us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Other scriptures you can read for that. 
or Galatians 3.18, Ephesians 1.14 and 18, Colossians 3.24, and 2 Corinthians 5.10. Now, in the mind of the Jewish Christians there, they would see a contrast between Old and New Testament. Their inheritance as a Jewish people was land. But it was perishable. It wasn't undefiled. They lost their inheritance. They lost their inheritance by messing around. They lost their inheritance by Roman occupation. But Peter is saying, your inheritance can't fade away. Why? Because it is in heaven, waiting for you. Nothing can happen to our inheritance as Christians. Our inheritance can never perish. It's unfading, undefiled, now and in the future. The, new, the, the now promises are accessed by faith. They're waiting. They're sitting there waiting. Healing is waiting for you. Financial prosperity is waiting for you. Wisdom is waiting for you. Everything that God has is waiting for you to, to get it, to take it. To pray. Lord, I want the spirit of wisdom and revelation. You pray Ephesians 1. Give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you that the eyes of my understanding would be enlightened. You have to pray for that. That I would know what is the hope of your calling and what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of your power which you wrought in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your own right hand in heavenly places far above all principality and power. You pray for that. If you never pray for it, you'll never get it. If you never learn to read the book of Proverbs where there's wisdom and pray that out and say, God, I need your wisdom. I need to deal wisely in the affairs of life. What you'll do as a Christian is you'll, you'll deal stupidly in the affairs of life. It doesn't, all the blessings of God do not fall on you like ripe apples off a tree. You've got to ask for it. You've got you to concentrate on it. You've got to believe by faith. But you can have it. As I said to one in a sermon the other day that I preached to people, find the scripture that covers your case and start praising God for it and start believing God for it in your life. Your inheritance now and in the future cannot be corrupted because the Bible says it's kept, in, in, in that verse, it's kept in heaven, verse 4, it's kept in heaven for you. The inheritance you have is not subject to decay. It can't be worn out with passage of time. Hebrews 7.26, For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus, our high priest, is in the heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, who contains all of the blessings of the new covenant. So our inheritance, now and in the future, cannot be corrupted. Our inheritance is already in existence, now and in the future. 
The word kept is a perfect passive participle indicating a completed past activity by God. He has reserved it for us. All of the blessings, present and future, are reserved for us. I tell you, it changed my life forever. Changed our lives as husband and wife, changed our children's life, changed everything about it. When I found out that I had to access all of this stuff by faith. Now, I may not have time to tell you this tonight, so I'm going to tell you now. We need to go through phases in our Christian walk. Something that has come to me just recently. We need to stay at the cross. In the cross of Christ, I glory, towering over the wrecks of time. Cross of Christ. This is where it all happened. This is where our salvation was anchored, what Jesus did on the cross and resurrection. So I stay there. But spiritually, I keep looking at the cross, but spiritually I have to move a little bit from the cross to Pentecost. After the cross, there's Pentecost. Pentecost was a time, it's a deeper experience of the Holy Spirit where you receive a spiritual language called speaking in tongues that you can pray out the things that you don't know what to pray out and that the Holy Spirit can pray through you into the will of God where your mind is not affected. You don't know sometimes what to pray for. So it's a spiritual language in prayer. You need to go from the cross there. But you can't stay there either. The cross, some Christians stay at the cross. They've never experienced that. It's never preached in their churches. So they've never experienced Pentecost. They could, but they stay at the cross. Some Pentecostal Christians stay at Pentecost, never go beyond that. So that there's the cross, there's Pentecost. But what do you think would be next? Psalm Psalm 23 says, He spreads a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What would be on the table of God? Anything you need. Lord, pass me. Now, in the presence of your enemies, see, the, the, the devil can't come up to the table, but he's there trying to mess you up, trying to keep from you all this stuff that's on the table. You want to concentrate on him and what he's doing. But Jesus is sitting at the table with you, and he wants to pass you something. Wisdom, pass me a bowl of wisdom. Healing, pass me a bowl of healing. I I have this joy, Lord, but I want to experience this more. Pass me something that that can increase the joy in my life. Because I have it, I just need to how to anchor it out, how to get it out. And I, I, I need, Lord, I need my finances straightened out. Uh, Pass me a bowl of financial prosperity. Some never get there. Some never think to even ask God about it. I never did. I was just going from paycheck to paycheck, barely making it, snorkeling under 
the debt. Till I found out about this that I'm sharing with you tonight. And I thought one day, I thought, Lord, if this is true, then I'm going after it. But it is true, you see. It is true. It spreads a table before me. Well, what's after the table? You got the cross, wonderful. You got Pentecost, tongues, good. Praise God. But you just can't stay there in your Christian life. You got to come up to the table and receive from God. He wants you to receive. What's next? Some Christians never get to this. Jesus said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth, therefore you go. I'm giving you the authority in the earth. Whatsoever things you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. You guys have authority. And stuff that comes your way that's, 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 that's hindering you, that you know is not godly and you know is not from God, that this stuff is coming like that, you can take authority over it. You have authority in this earth and stuff that's around you. A, a lady that I knew and was very close to Esther had a husband who was beating her up. She found out about this business of authority. He came in one day all rankled and carrying on. And she said, in the name of Jesus, he flew across the kitchen, banged up against the wall and slid down and said, please don't do that again. But you have to have it in your heart to know that you have the authority in the name of Jesus. When you get on an airplane to fly it, you command that airplane, you tell that airplane that you're going to the other side. The pilots are alert. This plane is mechanically sound and in the name of... I, I, I do that before I ever get to the airport. I say, thank you, Lord, that the planes that we fly on today are mechanically sound. The pilots are alert. We take off and land in every, uh, every leg of the flight without incident or accident. We'll come home with joy unspeakable and full of glory for the plane. I'm the, best, I'm the best guy to go on a plane with. I don't say that bragging. I say that because of Jesus. See, we need to get to those spots in our lives and enjoy it. And God will never, get, God will never make you do anything. <laughs> Just like he never made you go to the cross. You can go there, but don't just stay there in your Christian life. Go on. He'll never, he'll never make you speak in tongues. So don't worry about it. If you don't want it, don't worry about it. Very easy. Are you going to try to get us to speak in tongues, Pastor? <laughs> no. I'm not, we're not going to force anybody at City Church to do anything. We're just going to lay it out for you and say, here's what's available. Are you out there? I can hardly stand it. I've got to get back on my notes. We'll never get to it. We'll be in mid-millennium before we get to <laughs> Peter. Forget the... Forget, forget trying to keep your stuff in the millennium. Just get this done. Jesus. Jesus, help us.
So Peter is telling everybody, especially these Jewish Christians that are in this congregation, the new covenant inheritance is far superior to the earthly inheritance of the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. This earthly land not kept for them, but was taken from them by exile and, and, and later by the Roman occupation. The beauty of the land was repeatedly defiled. And he's saying that your inheritance is undefiled. Listen to Jeremiah 2.7. And I, and I brought you into a beautiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, but when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Jeremiah 3.2 Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where you have not been ravaged. By the wayside you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Their actions caused a defilement of their inheritance. Your actions can't defile your inheritance. That causes people's brains to go tilt. Your inheritance will always be available. Your earthly inheritance will always be available. But you have to exercise your faith. Those inheritances we have in heaven will never, never, be, never fade away. Because Jesus is alive, our earthly inheritance and our heavenly inheritance can never fade away. It'll never be a time when you can't get healed. There'll never be a time when all the blessings of God can't be available to you. There'll never be a time in heaven when there'll ever be pain or sorrow or suffering because all those inheritance are already kept there for you. Now here's one other thing. Verse 5. Who by God's power, talking about us, who by God's power are being guaranteed, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is our inheritance kept, but God keeps us. We are kept. It would not be comforting to know that nothing could destroy our inheritance if we could lose it ourselves and be lost. The wonder of our hope is that the same power of God that keeps our inheritance keeps us. Thank you, Jesus. You can never be a happy Christian and sin. Because the Holy Spirit is on the inside of you and he's staying there. So you might as well get the whole, might as well get it straight. Might as well live right. <laughs> Why not enjoy your Christian life? In verse 5 it says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Means kept safe, carefully watched. Philippians 4, 7, we'll have to stop here. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. The, re the peace of God will guard your mind like a military guard to prevent a hostile invasion or to keep the inhabitants of a besieged city from escaping. Verse, that, that scripture that Peter's trying to say to us con uh, combined with Philippians 4, 7, it keeps our thoughts 
of Christ in and hostile thoughts out. You need to start confessing the peace of God that passes all understanding guards my mind. Peace guards my mind. Say it. Peace guards my mind. So we will stop there and pick up in verse 5 next week. I'll try my best to go faster, but I'm not promising. Thanks for listening. If you need prayer or would like to share how this message has impacted you, please email info at thecitychurch.ca.